good morning. Uh, for those who don't know, my name is Austin DeArmond, and I am filling in for our wonderful uh, pastors. They are out of town. I told Mr. Bob, man, it's slim pickings this morning, as we say in North Alabama. And so what is the task before us this morning? So what are we here to do? And I believe it's rather simple. We must understand and listen to these scriptures in order to more deeply appreciate, adore, honor, and obey Jesus in our lives. And so every word of that sentence was chosen on purpose. And so I'm going to read it one more time. We must understand and listen to these scriptures in order to more deeply appreciate, adore, honor, and obey Jesus in our lives. It's not enough to know the word. Demons know the word. Amen. We must obey Christ by obeying the word. We must know Christ by obeying his word. And so, friends, this morning, we're here to feast. At first, this passage uh, was a little difficult for me uh, to kind of get my head around. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot going on. But brothers and sisters, after I reflected, after I studied, prayed, I really came to see that the most important thing we can do this morning is to fix our eyes upon Jesus. We're going to focus on what these moments that happened in real space-time history reveal about the real person of Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. At our church, we go verse by verse. If you need a, a Bible, hold your hand up, and a member will come and give you one. We go verse by verse to see what the Lord has for us. And so let's do two things. First, let's read the passage together and sit under the authority of the Bible. And then second, let's pray God would open our eyes to the lovely things about Jesus found in his holy word. And so the verses will also be on the screen. And so let's read this passage together. Mark chapter 2, verse 23, it says this. One Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Verse 25. And he said to them, that is the Pharisees, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and was hungry and those who were with him. In the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also it to those who were with him. Verse 27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. Verse 4. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they, the Pharisees, were silent. And he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. 
And so let's pray that God would open our eyes that we may see Jesus clearly this morning. Pray with me, please. Father God, we praise you for who you are, for what you've done for us and our salvation. God, we praise you that you are always working. You're always blessing. You're always moving. And so God, I pray as you are always working, God, that we would have the eyes to see it this morning. God, as we gaze uh, into this beautiful diamond that is your word, that you would show us different facets of the beauty that is Jesus Christ. And so, God, I, I pray against distractions. I pray against the enemy. I pray against anything, God, in this room, on the live stream, that could stop us from seeing Jesus in all of his beauty. And so, Lord, do what only you can do through the power of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And so, three truths this morning. So here is the first truth if you're a note taker. Jesus is the supreme Lord of the scriptures. Jesus is the supreme Lord of the scriptures. Now look back at verses 23 through 26. So he's, they're on the Sabbath, they're in the grain fields, they're walking, and the disciples begin plucking grain. The Pharisees have a problem with this, and they say, look, why are they doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And so this is, again, another one of those controversies we see in Mark that Jesus finds himself in the middle. And so the issue is the Sabbath. And so what in the world is the Sabbath? What's the big deal with the Sabbath? And so there were really two ways that you knew someone was a Jew in the Old Testament. These are called identity markers. Males were obviously circumcised, and I'm not going into detail about that. And then there is the Sabbath. The Sabbath was kept. So if you go all the way back to creation, God creates everything in six days. And then what does he do? He rests on the Sabbath. And baby, he didn't rest because he was tired. He rests to showcase to the world that he was in charge. He is large and in charge. And so that resting on the Sabbath day became an ongoing example for his people. And so think about this. God creates man on the sixth day. And what is the first thing that man is to do? Rest, worship, delight in the presence of God. God loved them before they accomplished anything. And so the Sabbath finds its existence all the way back in creation. And then it became an enduring command for the people of Israel. So if you know your Ten Commandments, you know in Exodus 20 it says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourners, who are within the gates. For six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the Sabbath day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so the Sabbath was meant to be this little sanctuary in time that showcased to the world that our God provides. He delights. He gives true and lasting rest. He is for us. He will always take care of us. He can be trusted. The Sabbath made Israel a distinct people. And it kept them from becoming like their neighbors around them. It was, if you think about it, a tool not only for worship, but for mission. And so imagine, you know, you, you live near Israel. 
and you're working on the Sabbath, and you look out and see some Jews just basking in the sun, just soaking it all up. I mean, they're, they're sitting out, eating something that a Jew would eat, I don't know, and just living it up. And you may say, well, wait a minute, aren't you going to work? You know, don't you need to work to provide food? Don't you need to sew clothes so you have something to wear? Aren't you worried? And then a Jew would turn around and say, no, our God reigns. He will provide for us. And this is what it's all about. And so the Sabbath was a beautiful thing that God gave. But by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees, the rabbis, the teachers of the law had utterly tainted and corrupted the Sabbath. Everyone agreed you were told not to work. Don't work on the Sabbath. But the problem was, what constitutes work? What counts as working? And so by the time of Jesus, the Jewish leadership began creating all of these extra rules, all of these extra guidelines, these traditions, to protect the Sabbath and to protect the individual from breaking the Sabbath. And so I want to kind of give you a list of certain things by the time of Jesus that you could not do on the Sabbath. And they're going to, they're going to kind of sound a little excessive. All right? And so here it is. You couldn't light a candle. You couldn't take a bath because water might spill onto the floor and that would count as washing. You couldn't move furniture in the house because if you created a rut in the dirt floor, that counted as plowing a field. Women couldn't look in the mirror lest they be tempted to pluck their gray hairs. For the ladies in the room. You could travel only 1,999 steps or approximately 3,000 feet from your home. That's as far as you can go. You were not permitted to throw something with one hand and catch it with the other. You could only carry enough ink to write two Hebrew letters. This one's wild. False teeth could not be worn because they often exceeded the weight limit and it counted as if you were carrying something on the Sabbath. Isn't that wild? You had to gum around on the Sabbath. And so what's the weight limit? The weight limit was anything that weighed less than a, than a dried fig. And so if something weighed half the weight of a dried fig, you could pick it up twice in one day. And so that, that sounds absurd, doesn't it? But then the way they obeyed the Sabbath with all of these extra rules became absurd. So remember, you can only walk 3,000 feet from your house. And so what they would do Friday evening is they would take some food from their house or a utensil or a shirt, a garment, and they would put it approximately 3,000 feet from their door. On the Sabbath, they would go to that utensil or that loaf of bread or whatever, and then they would view that loaf of bread or utensil as an extension of their home, and they would walk 3,000 more feet. And so, essentially, as long as you put items of your house, house approximately 3,000 feet out, every so often, you could walk all the way to Egypt and not break the Sabbath. It's wild, isn't it? And so the question is, were Jesus' followers breaking this? And so, again, the Pharisees, you know, who believed you could only walk 3,000 feet from your house just so happened to be in a field finding Jesus and his disciples. That's ironic, isn't it? And so what's happened? The disciples are hungry. They're traveling to, to help others, to serve others. And they begin just picking heads of grain and shucking it. Grew up in North Alabama. We had wheat fields around our house. And when it was ripe, you would go out, pluck it, put it between your hands, rub it, and then blow. The chaff would fly away and you could eat the kernels. 
That's exactly what the disciples are doing here. This was allowed. They're not breaking the Sabbath. Listen to Deuteronomy 23:25. This is on the Sabbath. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. And so you could walk through a field on the Sabbath, pluck grain, shuck it, and even eat it, as long as you did not pull out a sickle and start reaping. As long as you did not begin to plow. And so the disciples are not breaking the Sabbath. Now, they're not following the traditions and rules and, and, and these regulations that the Pharisees created, but they're not disobeying God. And so Jesus doesn't make that argument. That would be, that would be Austin DeArmond's argument. Go back to Deuteronomy and be like, you're wrong. Jesus instead appeals to 1 Samuel 21. And so what's going, in, going on in 1 Samuel 21? So you have David running from King Saul. They used to be besties, but now David and Saul are at odds, and Saul wants to slaughter David. So David's running with his men. He, he's, he's trying to flee the, the attack upon his life. He goes to the city of Nod, and he goes to the high priest and says, Elimelech, do you have any food? Me and my, my men are starving. Do you have anything that, that could give us sustenance? And so Elimelech says, all I have is the holy bread, the bread of the presence. And so in the Old Testament, every day a loaf of bread was made in the temple and only the priests were permitted to eat it. And so David says, my men have kept themselves pure. May we have the bread. And Elimelech says, yeah. In that moment, Elimelech gives David and his men this holy bread. Because in Elimelech's mind, he is following the spirit of the law. Mercy is triumphing over the letter of the law in that moment. 1 Samuel 21 implies that Elimelech did no wrong and David did nothing wrong. So Jesus appeals to that story. And so why? Why on earth would you appeal to that story? And so what is Jesus' point? And so I think this is where it comes into Jesus being the Lord over the scriptures. So Jesus' appeal to King David is because everyone believed that David was the greatest Israelite king. He's the greatest, the goat, all right? The greatest of all time, for those who don't know. If David did this on the Sabbath and was not corrected, surely Jesus' disciples can pluck some grain. So one who is more holy than David stands before the Pharisees. In fact, Jesus is the greater Davidic king who has been sent down to rule and reign on behalf of the people of God. Jesus is the one for whom David and every Israelite king who ever did anything good pointed towards. If one who is greater than David is in their presence, surely, beloved, his disciples can eat grain. So do you see the argument that he's making? So Jesus' authority, especially as the supreme interpreter of Scripture, outstrips that of the Pharisees. The clash of authority is not about the rules, it's about who rules. All right, Jesus has every right to do what he wants to do on the Sabbath because he came up with it. He wrote it. He was there in the beginning. He's the one who rested on the seventh day. So when you're coming to Jesus and questioning his ability... And questioning his authority, you're questioning the very authority of God who wrote the scripts. 
And so it is about who rules, not just about the rules. You know, we, we, we need to be okay with letting Jesus tell us what is good, true, and beautiful. And have the courage to bank upon it, even in a culture that's going to say that's bigoted, that's wrong. Next, truth number two. Jesus is the supreme Lord of the Scriptures. Truth number two, Jesus is the supreme Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the supreme Lord of the Sabbath. Look at verses 27 and 28. And he said to them, the Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so again, what, what is the true purpose of the Sabbath? It was a gracious gift. It was meant to release you from the necessary toils and labors of work. The goal of the Sabbath was never to tie a burden around the necks of those who use it. It was a gift of mercy. The Pharisees would have argued, Hey bro, if your disciples did not plan ahead for lunch on the Sabbath, they should do without. They should just, they should just fast on the Saturday. And then Jesus corrects that. The Pharisees have their rules and regulations, their quibbles and fusses. They misrepresent the, the, the will of God here when it comes to the Sabbath. It's made for spiritual and physical rest. God left people free on the Sabbath. The rabbis put them in chains. The absurd legalism of the teachers of the law left people tired and in bondage. When God's law meant to free people, meant to bless people, you don't understand the word of God and you don't understand the power of God. That's the argument. And then he goes further. So Jesus says in verse 28, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Years ago, I, I used to have conversations with Muslims. And this one gentleman, we would go back and forth all the time, he said, I need you to find just one passage in the Bible where Jesus says these three words, I am God. And if he says those three words, I'll believe Jesus is God, I'll leave Islam, I'll, I'll convert to Christianity, yada, yada, yada. And so I would take him to different passages and say, there it is. And they'd say, ah, he didn't say the exact three words. And I'd take him to another passage. Nope, 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 nope. He didn't say, I am God. If I had wisdom back then, I would have took him to this passage. Because Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. He calls himself the Lord even of the Sabbath. So this is an allusion to something in the Old Testament from Daniel chapter 7. And so it says this in Daniel chapter 7, this vision of God Almighty. It says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. God Almighty is on the throne of heaven, ruling the cosmos. Thousands upon thousands of angelic beings are worship of him. And there is the book of judgment opened up because he is the final authority. And then something wild happens if you continue reading. Look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came like one who is a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, the Son of Man. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Why does Jesus teach as one who has authority? Why does Jesus have the right to determine exactly how we ought to understand the scriptures? Why does Jesus have the final say-so over this important matter of the Sabbath? Because Jesus, friends, is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the divine Son of Man whom the Ancient of Days has shared His kingly rule, dominion, and authority. Jesus speaks on behalf of God because Jesus speaks as God. Do you see that in this passage? The Lord says in Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I shall not share with another. And what do we find? The Lord sharing His glory with Jesus. What does that imply about Jesus? But that He is very God of God, light of light. Very true God. And so why does Jesus have the right to determine what's good and Gucci on the Sabbath? Because He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Do you see? So truth number one, Jesus is the supreme Lord of the scriptures. Truth number two, Jesus is the supreme Lord of the Sabbath. And the last truth, truth number three, Jesus is the supreme Lord of life. So Jesus has asserted his authority. He has stated his authority. Now he's going to display it. He's not one who, who, who merely speaks. He's not one who has just a couple words. He backs up everything he says with actions. And so let's look at Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And so Jesus asserts and displays his authority. Why does he do that? And so it's tempting to see and to think that Jesus is kind of just spiting the Pharisees. You know, they don't question his ability to heal. They question whether or not it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. You know, their idea was, you should only be healed on the Sabbath if it's a life-threatening illness, and this is not it. And so, technically, Jesus could have just Healed him before he walked in the door. Jesus could have been 822.7 miles away, thought it in his mind, and that man's hand would have been restored. And so why does Jesus wait until the Sabbath, go into the synagogue, and heal him publicly? I think, like we've seen before in Mark, he's moved with compassion. We don't know how this man became disabled. Either he was born with it, or he had it happen later in life. But know this, if you had a withered hand during that time, that was a tremendous physical, emotional, and psychological burden. And it was a burden for two reasons. First, everything economic revolved around you being able to work. Whether you're plowing a field, whether you're 
uh, building something, you're sewing, you're dyeing cloth. He likely could not work with his disability, which meant he was probably in eject poverty. But maybe even more important, he would have been viewed as under God's judgment for being disabled. Physical disability was viewed as a means of God's punishment, either for that person or even that person's family. And so, y'all, there was a moment in the synagogue ceremony when, when every Jew stood up, they took out their hands, they looked up to heaven, and they all prayed, and they all received a blessing. And so imagine the man, let's call him Judah. And Judah stands up during that moment, and Judah is hiding his hands. Judah is not putting his hands out in front of everyone. People begin to whisper. People begin to look. People begin to nudge Judah and be like, come on, God. We're, we're, we're worshiping. We're, we're, we're praying to Yahweh. We're praying to the Lord. Eventually, someone might even say, Judah, get with the program. Is there something wrong with your relationship with the Lord? Why are you not worshiping? And so Judah finally will take out his hands showcasing that he has a disability. And they would have said, ah, that's why you were afraid. You're hiding your hands because you've been hiding the sin in your heart and God has judged you for it. And so how do you think that man felt in that moment? Um, I think he, he might have been embarrassed. He, he might have even possessed a sense of horror. So often... Those with disability just want to hide and veil their disabilities because they're worried what people will say, think, or do. I have special ed students, and there are students that walk my halls, and so often they're afraid of being in front of people or they're afraid of being caught on because they're afraid what people are going to think about their life. And yet, Jesus commands the man to come here or literally rise up and so the man has to be deeply conflicted because he's afraid of being socially ostracized he's, he's likely embarrassed but he knows who Jesus is and when Jesus says get up beloved we get up we rise up we do what he says to do even if there's a fear of embarrassment we get up because Jesus is the one who tells us to get up and so I'm amazed by the man's character and his courage. But y'all, I'm amazed by the courage of Jesus. Jesus doesn't flinch. Baby, he walked in that room knowing there were people in that room that hated him. That wanted him to fail and to fall. And yet, Jesus still has compassion. Jesus still steps up and steps out for the sake of that man. Jesus' love is fierce. His courage is the unflinching kind. There is a tender and holy fire about his character. There is a moral clarity and beauty about the person of Jesus. No one has ever taught like that man. No one has ever walked like that man, healed like that man. And so he asked that question in verse 4. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or kill it? In asking the question, he's answered it. Obviously, it's always the right thing to do the right thing, right? It's always good to help others. So the first part of the question applies to the man with a withered hand. 
The second part of the question likely applies to Jesus. Because remember, they're in the room and they're going to plot to kill him. They know they're wrong. And then Jesus asked the man to stand up. He sees the response of the religious leaders. And what do they do? They stay silent at the question. The preachers of the day, the rabbis, are a bunch of persnickety moral pansies. They're a bunch of hypocrites who know the right thing, but who fail to do it. I want to to point this out. They not only hate Jesus, they hate that disabled man. Because imagine the life that he has lived up unto this point. And so the man's withered and deformed hand does not compare to the withered and deformed hearts of the Pharisees. Whereas the man has a shriveled hand that is now open to God, the Pharisees have a shriveled heart that is closed off to God. And y'all, this makes Jesus angry. This makes Jesus grieved. And the word in the original language could literally be translated as furious or hot with anger. It is fury mixed with pain, anger mixed with profound sadness. The only other time in Mark's gospel where you find such extreme emotion in Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's sweating teardrops of blood before the cross. And so this moment showcases Jesus' true feelings. And then what does he do? He speaks, and the man's hand is healed. The Pharisees have no right to be angry. They're upset. They're mad as all get out, y'all. That's how we say it in, in North Alabama. They are mad as all get out. Mad as a hornet nest that been, that's been kicked. But they don't have a right to be angry. Jesus didn't do anything. He didn't do any sort of physical thing, an act. He simply spoke, and the man's hand was healed. And so this should remind you of Exodus 4. You know, Moses is being called to go and free the people of Israel, and he's like, I can't do it. And God's like, you're going to do it. And he's like, but I can't speak. Yes, you can. I'm afraid. I'll be with you. And Moses gives this long list of reasons why he can't do what God is telling him to do. And then look at verse This is chapter 4, verses 5 through 7 of Exodus. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. He put his hand back inside. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent. Really? Really, Moses? Either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant right at this moment. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And verse 11 says, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I the Lord? Now there go for go. And I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Moses puts his hand in his cloak. Leprous. Puts it back in. Healed. Jesus looks at the man and says, Healed. And the man's hand is whole. The same God in the old is standing right here before us in the new. And then how do the religious leaders respond? They get with some political enemies behind closed doors. And they conspire to kill Jesus. It's ironic. They can't walk 3,000 feet from their house. And yet they just happen to find themselves in a field where Jesus is be bopping along. Right? A little suspicious. 
right? A little suspect. And yet, you know, they're, they're upset Jesus speaking healing, but they have no problem going behind closed doors and planning his murder. They're not law keepers. They're law breakers. The only sinless one here is Jesus. And so Jesus is the supreme Lord of the scriptures. Jesus is the supreme Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the supreme Lord of life. And so what do we do with this passage? Beautiful, isn't it? Stunning. Stunningly beautiful. And so what do we do with it? I think there are three takeaways. And so if you are a note taker, here's takeaway number one. We must watch how we use the scriptures. Flee legalism. The Pharisees took something so beautiful, something of God, and they turned it ugly. And beloved, the fault was not in the law. Paul says in Romans 7 that the law is spiritual, meaning it comes from the Holy Spirit. Or 1 Timothy 1.8 says, Now that we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The issue was not the word. The issue was how they were using the word. The scriptures are never, should never be a means of pretending that we are better than others. They aren't a measuring rod in order for us to measure up and then use to beat our neighbors with. Flee legalism. Listen to what Paul says about legalism in Galatians 3, 1 through 7. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that you're now being perfected by the flesh, by legalism? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law, by legalism, or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. We don't get in the Christian life by working for it. And baby, we don't stay in the Christian life by working for it. We, we rest. We love. We trust. Watch how you use the scriptures. A Christian legalist is like a piano player who knows all the right notes but never makes music. It is like someone, an actor or actress in a movie, who reads off the lines in a wooden fashion on the cue card. It's like a dancer who knows all the right moves but lacks rhythm and the freedom enough just to break loose. Or it's like a world-class chef down in the French Quarter who never puts all the ingredients in the gumbo pot. It doesn't make sense. Watch how you use the scriptures. Flee legalism. Second truth. Second takeaway. Pay attention to the heart of Christ. In this story, the callousness of the Pharisee's heart caused Jesus to experience both a mixture of anger and grief. How do we respond to our sin? Are we dull to the things that grieve God's heart? Are we apathetic and stone-hearted to the state of our lives. And I'll take it a step further. How do we respond to the sins of others? The sins of our culture. 
When I look at my life and the life of others, I so often think this is not the way it's supposed to be. When I look at Jesus, I think, man, I don't, I don't have the same view of sin sometimes that Jesus has. And so God, give us your heart about our sin and the sin of others. And the last truth, and probably the most important, the last takeaway, rest and relish in the work of Christ. Rest and relish in the work of Christ. The ultimate goal of the Sabbath was always worship. It was always rest. It was about finding your delight and satisfaction in Christ. Beloved, the gospel gives that to you. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The, our very salvation is the rest that the Sabbath pointed to. Beloved, if we are in Christ, we are in the promised land of God's rest. We have everything we need to delight in God if we are in Jesus this morning. And so I'll end with this. Brothers and sisters, if we have accepted Christ as our Lord, as our Savior, as our treasure, we've truly entered into that rest. And we so often forget that, don't we? I forget it. If you've been worried or anxious this week, irked, burdened, or weak, if you feel frail, fickle, or fragile, if you feel like you're a basket case, a lost cause, a has-been, under-noticed, forgotten, not within the cool crowd, embittered, quietly, angry, or loudly mad, if you don't understand God's timing and are worried He somehow got the wrong watch on, if you just feel tired, ran down, exhausted, or bothered, you don't feel like you're in control or you're tired of pretending like you're in control. I want to invite you into his rest this morning. Believer, that's for you. And if you're an unbeliever in the room, baby, that's for you. Come to Jesus. Come to him for the rest that your soul so desires. It is well with our souls. If we have put our faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to respond this morning by singing it is well with our souls. And so if, if you're tired, sing it as worship. Sing it as praise. Sing it as, as to the one who can make good on that promise to give you rest. If you don't know his rest, I invite you to enter in. Put your faith, put your trust, not in yourselves and what you can do but in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the Lord of the Sabbath. You're the Son of Man. You are the Sovereign One who interprets the Scripture, gives the Scripture. You are the One who gives life. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do what only you can do right now as we respond in worship. God, we are tired we're exhausted, we are belabored, and we need rest. And so, Father, in this time as we worship, as we pour out our heart to you, God, give it. 
We pray that we would see Jesus as lovely and as beautiful and as praiseworthy and as noble and as precious and as supremely good and that we would respond and worship Him accordingly. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty and precious name. Amen. Let's stand.